0: Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky.
1: Hello, I'm Gail. And I'm Catherine. And we are delighted to welcome you to today's episode of Women Over 70. As you know by now, our signature is featuring women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who are leading lives that illustrate inspiring ways to learn, contribute, and make a difference as we age. The 30 minute conversation with our guest is not scripted or rehearsed, although we will focus on several themes that we've agreed upon in advance. Today we are thrilled to introduce you to Susan Oppenheim.
0: Hi, Susan. <laughs> we are thrilled to welcome you. Dr. Susan Monecker Oppenheimer, age 80, now retired. Susan has been an uh, organizational development consultant. She's been an executive with Ameritech. She's been an educator for years at all different levels. She has worked with her husband on the Oppenheimer Family Foundation and Teacher Incentive Grants, an award for Chicago public school teachers who use project-based learning to bring creative experiences to the classroom. Susan and Ted married in 2001, and they have a blended family of three adult children and four grandchildren. Now, what I really want to talk about, Susan, are the other parts of your life that are so incredibly interesting. And I've known you for many years and um, Gail and Susan actually share a common bond in terms of being graduates of our individually designed graduate program here at School for New Learning. And having known Susan, one way to, I think, frame part of this conversation, Susan, is around your involvement in movements for equality and justice. So we'd li- I'd just like to hear some of that history, what, what got you started? Well, um, my parents were
2: first generation, didn't have much money for us to go to college, and so I went to Towson State Teachers College, which was tuition free because it was following World War II by you know a decade or so but um it was a time when there was a great need for teachers and a population boom and so i got to go to college because of that and because that's what women did right Mm -hmm. and that generation was to teach and i remember sitting on a bed in a dorm room with another woman studying american history and we were saying wow things used to happen (laughs) we looked at the labor movement and you know different movements of people and there were, people would speak out and say what they thought and it seemed that nothing was going on this was like 1958 mm-hmm. 59 some time around there who knew the world was about to mm-hmm. explode with all of these movements and uh, i had the opportunity through student government to meet this group called world university service which um, turned out later I found out to be a CIA front, mm-hmm. which all, all the student groups were in mm-hmm. that period because the Soviet Union and the U.S. had just split um, into the Cold War. And so the student movements were part of their agencies. That's how they would recruit mm-hmm. their future politicians, their future spies, their, their future Unknown it, to you? Unknown to anyone, a- anyone. in the student mm-hmm. movement except mm-hmm. those who had been made witting, mm-hmm. which was the words that they used when they um, corralled people who were running for president mm-hmm. or vice president or a couple other positions of the United States National Student Association, mm-hmm. and they suddenly found themselves in a situation where they couldn't tell their families or anyone but that, that they had signed these papers. Mm-hmm. It was pretty horrendous. Mm-hmm. So that was part of what that the shift from being in this very provincial time and place mm-hmm. to a world where the student movements, the women's movement, which was the first movement I got involved mm-hmm. with. I was in the very first group of what's called second wave feminism, just because I was at the right place at the right time. What does that <laughs> mean though? what, what, was, um, what is second I mean, wave? I know what second wave is, but you, that you were involved in. So the yeah. first meeting, um, the first women's group, uh, there was a meeting in someone's house that Susan Klonsky remembered at mm-hmm. the party, but I don't remember who it was, um, where maybe about 25 or 30 women got together. There, there were papers that had been ri- written by women who were in the civil rights movement. This was 1966. And in 64, 65, the women inside of the, the civil rights movement would were talking about the way that they were treated mm-hmm. within the movement and the sexual expectations of particularly um, yep. Out of women who were out of the country, um, I mean, out of the um, area were expectations of these young women coming down to help and so forth. And anyway, so that, and Betty Friedan had written her book, mm-hmm. which came out in the late 50s, early 60s. And the combination of all of this had women, young women all over the country um, talking about it. And these groups formed into what became Consciousness Mm -hmm. called consciousness raising groups, but the very first official group that formed was the West Side Group in Chicago, and um, I was there (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) with all these very bright people who went to the University of Chicago and all the best Mm -hmm. schools. And you know, I just sat there like a sponge to take it all in because I had no idea.
1: When when you say you were there, what does that mean? You were there. How did you get
2: there? (laughs) Right. Well, I was working at the University of Chicago in the Student Activities Office. And so I became a member of SDS and went to all the meetings. And I became very close friends with Heather Booth, who was one of the founders of the women's movement in Chicago and a founder of Jane, which is a group that um, performed abortions Mm -hmm. when they were not legal. Um, She's been an activist her whole life, and many people will probably recognize Heather's name, but it was people of that quality um, and experience with a sense of how you uh, fight for agency and power. I didn't even know about those words Mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. And so the whole thing was a huge revelation, and I was totally ripe for fighting these fights. Mm -hmm. So, you know, first came the women's movement, and then the civil rights movement came to Chicago. And I had Been traveling with World University Service from campus to campus um, to do my work uh, because I worked for them for a couple of years as a traveler and wound up in Chicago. So when I was in the South I learned about the civil rights movement and I would see the differences for myself between visiting a a college that was predominantly white and a college Mm -hmm. that was predominantly black and the differences were quite extreme in terms of facilities and so forth. Um, And so I came to Chicago when the civil rights just before the civil rights movement came to Chicago and so when it came I was in the in the movement when Dr. King came and mm-hmm. the marches and so forth.
0: Were you an organizer? Is that part of what you were doing?
2: Um, I was working out of the South Side Action Center and um I you know, I cannot remember what we did, but I, <laughs> I bet it was a lot of leafleting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Did you grow up in Chicago? No, I grew up in Baltimore. Baltimore, Baltimore okay.
0: So, women's rights, civil rights? Stu- stu- student. There were student rights.
2: People were fighting for, sit, you know, were having sit ins about mm-hmm. things at the university and the university's right. relationship to the war. Mm-hmm. And the anti war movement was beginning because of Vietnam. Um, and then there were labor movement issues. There were community organizers. There were maybe five different places around Chicago where there was heavy duty community organizing about tenant rights and. Um, housing rights and so mm-hmm. forth it and was booming,
0: booming <laughs> was there were there particular areas that you focused on women's rights, civil rights, or were you really involved in all of those?
2: I guess I had a piece in all of those I would women 's rights were the thing mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. you know just personally really grabbed me mm-hmm.
0: mm. i don 't want to skip over any significant movements, <laughs> but uh, I know that you've been very involved in supporting work uh, around sex trafficking and can you tell you want to tell us about that um
2: sometime around 2010 i was at a woman's dinner with the international women associates which is a, a group that formed to engage expats and u.s women um, together and sheriff dart came to speak and he talked about trafficking of young girls as a domestic issue and how he had seen it grow exponentially into the tens of thousands, um, in Chicago. And so, and they had um, someone at each table from some organization that was involved in trafficking and gave us a little handout that had information from all these different groups. And, um, You know i looked through it i couldn't see how i could key in and i was as always (laughs) very busy with a number of things Mm -hmm. and um i just sort of was mauling about it and about a year later mary bonnet who had taught my daughter in elementary school (laughs) and had just retired from teaching um, met with me and told me that she was forming a woman's theater company her story theater to shine a bright light in dark places where women and children and girls particularly are in need of social justice. And that she was going to begin with this trilogy on homelessness, domestic violence, and sex trafficking. And her methodology was to interview people, the whole system. So she would interview uh, former prostitutes, former pimps, FBI agents, families, social workers, anybody who touched the issue in any way. And then she'd write a a version, a fictionalized version of these real stories, including the laws and so forth. And um, she invited me to work with her. And I said, yeah, I want to work on this. Because she did the homeless play. And then she started researching domestic violence. And what she realized was that sex trafficking cut through all of these. Mm -hmm. And she was going to do one play. And (laughs) then Someone asked her to do a second play, so she did a second play. Then we realized that we needed a play for students, so she did a third play. Then she learned about these hard men online called mongers mm-hmm. who um, trade information about young girls. Mm-hmm. Everywhere in the country you can get one, like ordering a pizza is what they say. And so she did a fourth play on monger. And so she has this cycle series and now does these wonderful things called sideshows uh, for professionals. So she has um, courtside for lawyers and judges. She's done about five or six of those. She's a mm-hmm. huge response because the laws changed uh, in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and very few judges knew about it at the time. That's much, you know, the fact that Jeffrey Epstein has been charged mm-hmm. and with all these sex trafficking charges and people have some awareness that it happens. Um, in 2010, when we started, It was, I called it the whiplash effect because Mm -hmm. you tell people what was going on and their heads would just swirl. They couldn't imagine that so many girls from so many Mm -hmm. different parts of the city were being trafficked Mm
1: -hmm. by
2: local gangs in Chicago primarily. But it's different in every city. Mm -hmm. What has been your role? What have you done? I I partnered with Mary, and so I do external liaison Mm -hmm. and. You know, the first place she needed 24 jazz singers, and I said, Oh, I can do I that. I can do
0: that. How was <laughs> it that you all... knew,
2: would know 24 jazz singers? Well, um, one of the things that attracted my husband and me together was our love for jazz. And he is currently on the board of the Jazz Institute of Chicago, and I'm on the board of the High Park Jazz Festival. And we've supported and go to many, many other jazz functions in the city. And so over the years, i Got to know a lot of musicians and singers, and actually most of the singers came through other people that I knew within the jazz community. But they came very—it was the fastest thing that I've had to do for in four mm-hmm. years for mm-hmm. her. And then there was a waiting line because a lot of these women, especially from the black community, know someone, have someone in their family, somebody's mm-hmm. disappeared—a mm-hmm. little girl—and mm-hmm. um, it's
0: giving me so, chills. Yeah, I mean. me too. As I'm yeah. listening, it's, yeah, it's. So yeah. that, that sounds like this is this is a movement that you're going to continue to be involved in, to champion?
2: Um, to the degree that I have a way to key in.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I really, there's not, working with Mary was a very easy connection mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. to do a lot of good work. Yeah. And I don't know that I have that in other ways, but I'll, I stay in touch with mm-hmm. it. And she's moving on to other plays now. Other topics what is her last other name? topics. Mary Bonnet, B O N N dot org. Yeah, great in case yeah. anybody
1: wants to look at yeah, right. that. I, I,
2: yeah. Her, her c- next play opens in the fall. I'll just mm-hmm, say it's I called Invisible mm-hmm. and it's about the women of the clan in the nineteen twenties who became mainstream. So if you want to know why, what drives me, the thought of that is utterly chilling.
1: Because look
2: around. Say more. My, I'll say that's that's all I have to say.
1: My mouth is open because <laughs> I just don't even think of women and the Klan in the same mm-hmm. breath. Right. And you're saying that there were women and there were lots of women?
2: It was mainstream, is what Mary is saying. I haven't seen the play yet. And I know there's been a lot of research about women, particularly in that period mm-hmm. in the Klan.
1: Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. You have done a lot, Susan. Well, this is scratches the surface. <laughs> scratches the surface is right.
0: Um, the I know you and Ted to be very involved in supporting the arts in Chicago, and and, and one um, aspect of that is supporting young younger kids, young kids in helping them to have access to music and arts and but I can you tell us about that am I making I'm not making this up am I no okay
2: um, well through the teacher incentive grants that we did Ted did for 40 years I worked with him on America 20 with mm-hmm. them um, primarily what he funded uh, were teachers to do creative work in the classroom integrating the arts into other things. And he started, his focus became the arts when Chicago Public Schools withdrew the art programs Mm -hmm. out of the schools. Mm -hmm. And my particular interest has always been around tap dance and jazz and theater as well, but um, really, you know, the jazz and the tap. And the Jazz Institute of Chicago has a program called Jazz Links, which has involved hundreds of kids in jazz programs they had citywide jazz concerts and contests and stuff like that, and many, many of those students through Merritt School of Music, mm-hmm. through Orbert Davis's Jazz Philharmonic, there's, there are many, many jazz singers, uh, musicians of all kinds who have mentoring programs for mm-hmm. kids, mm-hmm. and um, many of those kids go on to have careers, not just as musicians, but, you know, as support, as producers and so forth. Um, writers composers whatever and the same thing with tap dance which is so interesting because 20 years ago people thought tap was dead as an art and what they're doing in tap dance now if you have a chance to see you know something that's going on in your community around tap dance in chicago the two main groups are the chicago human rhythm project and mad rhythms and the people who run these two groups are dedicated to programs for young people. And so Brill Barrett, who runs Mad Rhythms, has, I think, um, 60 kids this summer. Mm-hmm. And about 40 of them are repeats. And I, not one or two time repeats. I mean repeats like who could get on the stage and perform mm-hmm. and have you, your draw drop. Mm-hmm. Some of them are doing choreography. A lot of the those who are really advanced are now teaching the younger kids so it's a pipeline um in that sense and there's a circuit around the world where they go and they perform and they teach it's very exciting
1: and are you a tap dancer
2: i'm a little bit of a tap dancer
0: (laughs) she's (laughs) more than a little bit i've seen her
1: (laughs) really i just saw her recently at her 80th birthday party well tapping away i was a tap dancer oh really well you should come to class because it's really fun I think you know everything.
2: Apparently not. This is a different kind it's rhythm tap. And Brill is a hoofer, which goes back to the days of blacks dancing on the street corners. Yes. Creating tap dance. Yes. Um so and that's what I that's what I take. I love it. Um I don't like to do the choreography. I just like to learn the steps and move to the music. (laughs) (laughs) When did you start taking tap lessons? 10 years ago? Um, uh, probably about 10 years. I took a class when I was in my 50s. You remember this maybe. And God dropped a chair on my toe and I didn't have That's to go right back. Right. I really didn't like the class. I didn't <laughs> like the music. If you don't, yeah. you don't like the uh-huh. music when you're tap dancing, yeah. it's really hard to do it. And so then I didn't do it again for a really long time. And sometime in my late 60s, I picked uh-huh. it up again. Yeah. <laughs> but it's been on and off at you know, different times. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: The numbers sound strange, but I, I don't relate to them anyway. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> I know that you're um, involved in a, an, a relatively recent movement around compassion and choices, and I'd love to. We'd love to hear about that.
2: So um, I have had in my life at least three very strong women who I watched go through a very long painful advance to death. And while death is inevitable, how one does it Mm -hmm. is not necessarily um, the same way. (laughs) And it's been kind of an obsession of mine for the last couple of years to um, be able to write something to go along with my living will about beyond do not resuscitate. Mm -hmm. And I never knew how to frame it and to think about it uh, legally, what was possible. I never wanted to be in a position of doing something where someone could get arrested for something that I did to ease my life. And so I learned of this group, Compassion and Choices, which has both been a part of and grown out of the movement that's happened around the country to get medical aid in dying, mm-hmm. uh, first in Oregon and then in Washington, and now they're up to nine states. And it's an advocacy organization essentially about choice. And I don't want to say too much about what they're about because mm-hmm. I don't have the proper languaging. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about choice. Mm-hmm. And um, I would really highly recommend this book to people uh, called Finish Strong mm-hmm. by Barbara Combs Lee, who's the president of Compassion and Choices. It answered almost all of the questions that I had that have been plaguing me for all this time and it allowed me to get started on writing up what I wanted to say. And um, I also had a problem about my kids who both my daughter and Ted's daughter and son had traumatic deaths of the other parent. Uh, one through an accident and one through a virulent cancer Mm -hmm. that moved very quickly and happened within a few months of each other. So we had this very difficult time in our family and a time where it was really hard to talk about these kinds Mm -hmm. of issues. Mm -hmm. And so part of my concern was how I would approach both this process that I was on and my conclusions to our kids. And it's actually... You know, it's sort of things fall into place when you are trying to mm-hmm. figure this sort of thing out, and there's just been a lot of coincidence in this last four to six months of me meeting the people in Chicago who are working on Compassions and Choices to try to get a state law mm-hmm. in Illinois mm-hmm. for medical aid in dying, and um, and in my kids coming, you know, are now older, <laughs> and I mean it's been 13 years since their um, mm-hmm. their parents mm-hmm. died. And um, it's so the conversation has become easier as well, and I think the most important thing is that I feel a responsibility to be very clear about what my end mm-hmm. of life wishes are, and to make as many arrangements as possible so that at that time um, they don't have to think about that part.
0: Mm-hmm. And are you involved or are, do you plan to be involved in uh, the working for the legislation? Le- legislation?
2: I do, I do. Um, my hope is to be able to um, put people in Chicago in touch with them, to play a role where mm-hmm. I'm not doing organizing as I... <laughs> <laughs> careful, <laughs> something, careful. Something, <laughs> right, something holding <laughs> me back. Um, but,
0: you know, rather to um, to put networks mm-hmm. in touch with each mm-hmm. other and that kind of thing, yeah. You probably have kind of surmised this by now, but Susan is one of the <laughs> ultimate networkers. There isn't a person she doesn't know or couldn't find out. I mean, it's just amazing the the networks that you
1: have. It sounds yeah. that way. And yeah. you have so many disparate interests. Right. It is. And the
0: the the other thing about Susan that I've witnessed over the years is that there's networking where you're, It's kind of to your advantage to make these connections. Susan's connections are relational, right? They're relational. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're, they're, they're they become your friends. They become your
1: partners. They're just uh, they're the best kind. It's the best mm-hmm. kind. Absolutely. It's authentic. That's it's, right.
0: It's um, quite wonderful.
1: I'm exhausted listening to you. Me too.
0: <laughs> We're wondering, do you think about aging, and how do you think about it? Mm.
2: Well, there's, you know, the little fear part in my brain that goes, wonder what it's going to be
1: like when I'm blah, 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 blah.
2: <laughs> And what's going to go first? <laughs> um, so I have those. On the other hand, I, you know, I'm strong, and I... Um, and I have good genes uh, that last probably longer than most people in my family wish that they did, mm-hmm. which is part of why I think about this question. Um, so I just, um, I can't quite believe that I'm 80. Um,
1: I, I'm sitting here doesn't... with you, Susan. I cannot believe you're 80.
2: <laughs> you know, my energy level is not the same. And so learning to pay attention to that is a mm-hmm. huge challenge. But there is such a change in energy level that I have to pay attention to it. Mm. Can you describe it, the change? Okay. Well, the change is... Um, I, part of it is in the brain that um, I can't process as many things as quickly as I used to. And I forget stuff that... Uh, promises that I've made to do things. This is really what scares me about taking stuff on because I stuff just disappears out of my brain mm-hmm. and I don't know where it's gone. <laughs> and it, that's very new for me. And part of it, I had a very bad fall last year. Mm-hmm. And so it took me about a year to get over the anesthesia of the surgery that I went through surgeries surgery. that I went through. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh So I'm much sharper now than I was, but I still don't feel like I'm back to what I was. And so I just, I'm paying very close attention to that and trying Mm -hmm. to be careful not to take on, Mm -hmm. it's doing what I'm committed to is about as much as I can do
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and hope some of those commitments will go away (laughs) (laughs) at some point.
1: At least you are being honest with yourself. I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure it's very difficult to not say yes when it's something you care about. Or someone that you care about. Or someone about, you right?
0: care yeah. about. But she yes. just said no
2: to me for the first time ever.
0: Really? She did. I was very proud was of her. It was so
2: hard. <laughs> was it? Oh, yes. Was Couldn't it? you tell?
0: Oh, oh I just felt, oh, my <laughs> goodness, no. <laughs> 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 well,
2: good for you. <laughs> that was that was one of the basis of our friendship. And I was so funny when you raised that at my party that um, Catherine and I actually, be so she was my one of my advisors for my program. Mine too. But uh, when uh, we became friends, when a very good friend of Catherine's was killed mm-hmm. in Oak Park, mm-hmm. and um, we decided that we should take um, martial arts together for self-defense. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much martial arts we learned, but we had great times, <laughs> stuck in traffic for hours getting out to the north side and back. And that was one of the first things we talked about was how to say no.
1: Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, we're, we're making progress. Slowly. Slowly. <laughs> I think when you've been as active as you have and interested in so many things, it's it's really hard to say no. Yeah. Even though when you can't do the job the way you used to do it and you know that. Right. You just feel bad that you said no.
2: You do what you can, otherwise the option is not to be engaged at all. Mm -hmm. And that's for me, that's not a way that I want to live.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. You said you don't relate to the numbers, mm. and they sound strange anyway. <laughs> you didn't say which numbers. 60, 70, 80. <laughs> I figured it was age you were talking about. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, you, think of, you look at them and you ask yourself, I mean, why do they sound strange? Why, why do they sound strange? They just strange?
2: sound like big numbers, and I don't feel like I'm that big. <laughs> not,
1: <laughs> not big old. enough to be 80? I'm <laughs> not big enough to be 80. Yes.
2: Right. Wow. Um, one of my mother's sisters lived to be um, 98. And she called me one day and we were having a conversation on the phone, or I call. I don't call anyway. Um, and she was 95 and a half. And, and, a half, and um, I said something to her about it and she said, age is just a number. And so I just kind of stuck with that.
0: I, I didn't it, fully believe her. but mm-hmm. Now I I do. Now you do? <laughs> yeah. I yes. think it's interesting as I th- as I've seen as people get older they start adding the 90 and a half. My <laughs> mother my mother's 93 and a half. Like I'm when we were right. kids, yeah, we would do that. We were right. like, "Oh, I got to get to that next number." <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get to that next number. Yeah. <laughs> uh I also yes. know you do I, I want to make sure that we're covering any other comments you want to make, or because I also know you to be a really fun person, and and you and Ted and your children, your family, um, you know, you go on a jazz cruises and you travel during the winter, and I'm so tired just hearing all the different places you've been. <laughs> but um, what what is what is fun? What's pleasure in? Mm. For you now?
2: Well, sometimes pleasure is just sitting still, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yesterday I read all day. Oh, I want a day oh, like that. Oh my God. Time. It was yesterday I read all day. Um, I just, I was so exhausted and I just sat still. That was total pleasure. But, you know, um, we love to go to theater and to hear music and to mm-hmm. and watch dance. Those are three of our great enjoyments. And dancing together is one of our great thrills, which we haven't been able to do for the last several years. And um, after my husband has his new hip replacement, we hope that we'll be dancing again.
1: Mm-hmm. That's,
2: we're looking forward to that. Um, and we do like to travel. That also has just been difficult in the last couple years so we're hoping that we'll be able to get back to having fun that way. Susan and Ted are a great dance couple. We come from we're a year and a half apart in age and so we and he learned to dance on the east coast so there aren't many people who dance. I mean we just started from the day we met literally. You started dancing. We started dancing
1: right. (laughs) So have there been any you know unexpected events that have changed your life that so for our listeners is there anything you can suggest (laughs) to them that might be a way to think about life as it comes at you and then to be able to keep going
2: well i mentioned the cia controlled student organization so that certainly was something that came at me that um but I, you know, here I was in Chicago in this cushion of activity, and that's what I, where I put my energies and my attention, which is sort of taking me all the way through. I would say the other thing that um, that I didn't expect was to watch my mother and a favored aunt and a former mother-in-law who I really adored um, go through this hard time at the end, where these they were all just smart, you know, active women, mm-hmm. and um, to watch them literally decay mm-hmm. over time with no options at all has really um, stayed in my mind. And I, when I first heard about Compassions and Choices, um, we're part of an organization called Death with Dignity. Mm-hmm. And so there are a number of groups have sort of realigned into this coalition and some formed this new group. And um, when I first heard about it, I thought, you know, my Aunt Bernice had just died, and I thought, boy, she would have taken this option in a minute. You know. Um, and I'm I'm sure my mother would. I'm not so sure about the other woman. But um, you know, we she was a hundred years old, and she um uh, Ted and I were at her birthday party in Southern California. And she said she wanted to see me in her room after the party. And so I went in there and she was lying down in bed and she took my hand and she stared at me for the longest, I felt like three minutes, and she just stared at me and then she said, goodbye. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, she knows she's leaving And then she lived another three years Mm -hmm. and she just went down, 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 down Mm -hmm. to the point, I don't think she, she always knew who I was, but she couldn't, you know, communicate Mm -hmm. necessarily or something. So I just thought, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't, it was so so indignified for all three of them at the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: I'm not speechless, but I'm just thinking about (laughs) it. I feel speechless. I'm. I feel so strongly uh, about the compassion and choices, so that I just, I'm, this is an area that I personally am going to become involved in now that I'm retiring. (laughs) Um, And I just, I think I just join you in thinking it is enormously important. It's the ultimate justice.
1: Yeah. Right. I agree. So, and anything else, Gail? No, I have found this conversation to be so interesting, Susan. I'm really anxious to share it with our listeners. I know they're going to find it equally as interesting.
0: And motivating. Very inspiring inspiring and motivating.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. We've been talking with
0: Dr. Susan Meniker Oppenheimer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myth that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.